It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be diving into Rishi Sunak's first budget, which may have all been about coronavirus, but broke with decades of conservative economics. We'll be looking at those huge rises in public spending, which pledges on tax and spend, and whether the UK economy is really ready for the turbulence ahead. Plus, we'll be looking at the latest on coronavirus in Britain, the move from the contained delay phase, how much disruption is likely to come in the future, and how behavioural economics is driving Boris Johnson's approach. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, economics editor, Chris Giles, global pharmaceuticals editor, Sarah Neville, and political correspondent, Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Coronavirus is obviously disrupting all of our lives and the FT is sadly no exception. Our budget special on Wednesday was sadly cancelled due to the virus. We will do our best to continue delivering podcasts even if they're recorded remotely and we hope you can stick with us even if the quality might not be up to our usual standards. The first budget of Boris Johnson's government was always going to be a big moment to try and define what Johnsonism is and whether the party could deliver on the promises made to all those new Tory voters in the northern Midlands of England. It was also going to be a big moment for Rishi Sunak, who was only made Chancellor a couple of weeks ago and had not much time to pull together this budget, differentiated from his predecessor Sajid Javid, all while dealing with the unknown effects of coronavirus. Despite all those big challenges, the general consensus is that he pulled it off and delivered an impressive performance. So Chris Charles, just give us the overview of the budget. This was a very unconservative fiscal event, really. It was all full of spending and pledges to increase the size of the state, which is something Tories have not really done for, well, decades. Well, I think you go back to the early 70s, when we last had a Conservative government that was a little bit like this. It was much more like a new Labour type of budget. It's not like Labour under Corbynism, but it certainly was a case of borrowing, a lot more borrowing and a lot more public spending, backed up only a little bit by taxation. So just to give you the rough flavour of this, by the last year in the forecast, 24-25, there's £50 billion of extra public spending split, a little bit more between capital and current spending. And then £7 billion of additional taxation. The rest comes from additional borrowing. And so you're talking roughly £40 billion or so of additional borrowing. This is huge and it means it is by far the most expansive budget we've had under the period of the coalition and then the two, three Conservative governments we've had since then, since 2010. 
And it really is a change of course. So where we had austerity, we've now got expanded. We've now got public spending for departments growing at 2.8% a year in real terms when the economy is only going to grow at 1.4%. So we're seeing public spending growing as a share of GDP, of national income again. As you said, very unconservative, higher spending, higher tax big change. And the key decision made by Rishi Sunak, the new Chancellor, is the same one that we think Sajid Javid had made, that we're in this era of low interest rates. They don't seem to be budging anytime soon. So now is the time to borrow to invest. But it's still quite remarkable when you saw the budget being delivered and all the Conservative MPs cheering on this budget, which when I did a quick survey of MPs from the left and right of the party, in slightly puzzled, bemused tones, they said, to reflect your point about this being a new Labour budget, it was a very Gordon Brown budget, as well as the fact there was a lot of fiscal expansion, but a lot of hidden tax rises and lots of things in there that Tories traditionally don't like. But for now, they seem to be going along with it. Yes, I think if you think about what the big socio-economic political problem that Britain has not faced up to over the last, let's say, 50 years, is that what we really want in Britain is European-style public spending and public services and American-style taxation. And was this the moment where the new government decided to bite the bullet and address that? Absolutely not. So we got more spending, so we're going to get more European-style public services and trying to stave off all the problems that we saw. We're not really going to get a lot more taxation. In fact, all the options for big tax rises, apart from not cutting corporation tax, which was by far the biggest tax rise we had in the budget, were just pushed away. So we still have this problem, and this is what the problem I think will dog this government through the next four years, is at some point you have to choose... And at no point does a government want to choose. And at the moment, they're still not choosing. So, George Parker, first of all, what did you make of Rishi Sunak's budget? It really spoke to me, I think, one of your thoughts on is that when Boris Johnson came in as Prime Minister last summer, he was eager to say, I am a new Prime Minister, this is a new government. It was a total clear out from the Cabinet when Theresa May left office last summer. And even though the Tories have been in power for nine years, they've tried to sort of draw a line under that. This budget was very much drawing a line under the austerity years, the Osborne years, and the years we're all in this together. I think that's a good point. I think it's one of the greatest political tricks that Boris Johnson's managed to pull off, which is to suggest that after 10 years of Conservative government, including the coalition, of course, that this is a totally different looking regime. And he did that at the election. And I think as Chris has just been setting out now with an economic policy, which is a total variance to the one we were familiar with through the Osborne Cameron years. And, you know, it's easy to forget that in the 2010 and 2015 election, The Conservative Party thought it was a vote winner to go into the election promising austerity and tight control of public finances. So it was a big change. I think, you know, sitting in the chamber, you sort of almost got a sort of sugar rush from all the spending commitments that were being reeled off by the Chancellor. And at the end of it, all the journalists came out of the chamber and said exactly the same thing to each other. How on earth is he going to pay for this? And as Chris has just outlined, primarily he's going to pay for it through borrowing. So I think the budget has been widely said, really fell into two parts. The bit on the coronavirus, the 12 
billion package that was announced for that. I think it's generally seen as a good thing. Better to err on the side of spending too much on addressing this rather than too little. But on the other side of the equation, the long-term borrowing to invest is a massive punt on the idea that if you spend more on infrastructure, broadband roads and all the rest of it, you can raise Britain's productive potential. And I thought it was interesting, the stuff you were picking up in the tea rooms, Tory MPs getting a bit nervous about it, and in the chamber of the House of Commons, Theresa May and Sajid Javid both saying, hang on a sec, this looks a bit risky. And of course, ironic slightly, of course, because Theresa May fought her own battles with the Treasury. She wanted to spend more and Philip Hammond stopped her. And one of the really interesting things, so Rishi Sunak was saying how for the first time the office for budget responsibility, the independent fiscal watchdog had given the government credit for the capital spending, saying it was going to increase national income by 2.5% if they kept all this spending going in perpetuity. When you look harder at the books, and if you go to Annex B of their book in sort of page 200 and something, actually the OBR have cut the long-term growth rate of the UK economy, their assessment, because they felt, not because of anything in the budget, but they felt it was too high. And so this 2.5% is chicken feed relative to what they really think is going on. Is that just general events mean that it's unlikely we're ever going to get back to 2.5% growth. And now they think the long-term rate is 1.5%. It's very hard to be very generous when your economy is only growing at 1.5% a year. Indeed, I remember talking to a Treasury minister who said, to go back to your point, Chris, about the kind of state Britain wants, that given the ever-increasing demands on public service, the ageing population, unless Britain could get to a sustainable growth rate of about 2%, then really delivering the kind of services we've become used to is going to be very difficult. To pick up on something George almost said before, how are they going to spend all this money? Because we have been here before and a lot of this spending is, you know, you do get the risk of bridges to nowhere, empty hospitals, empty housing blocks, because this was what the Conservatives criticised John McDonnell for doing, for saying that he was promising lots of spending without really knowing how it was going to help. And of course, over many decades, people have tried to use public spending to boost productivity and boost growth. And it doesn't always necessarily work in the long term either. So it's a big gamble as well as a change in philosophy. I mean, one thing is they're not going to spend all the money they've planned to spend and the OBR have estimated that they will only spend 80% of the money that they want, particularly in infrastructure. So that's one, and that's in the books. On how effective is it? Well, no one knows is the honest answer. We don't think it's massively effective. So what the OBR's calculation is, is over the five years of the parliament, the essentially roughly 80 to 100 billion extra capital spending, which is about 1% of national income, will buy you a permanent increase in the size of the economy of 0.5%. It's not a lot. So you don't get a lot of bang for your buck. But with interest rates of where they are, if they're close to zero, maybe that's a decent return on your money. So you can look at it in both ways. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing to do, but don't get too excited. Don't start thinking that this is revolutionary. The economy will look terribly different. Levelling up will be so different in five years. None of that's going to happen. doesn't mean it's a bad thing to do the spending, though. So you've got to be able to play both things. It might be exactly the right thing to do, but we're still going to have quite an unequal society in five years' time, just as we have now. As Chris is saying, I mean, actually trying to spend £100 billion is incredibly difficult, as previous chancellors have found. And I suppose one of the good things about that is that getting infrastructure projects into the shovel-ready phase is particularly difficult, which could mean, of course, that the money spent in a more productive way, for example, on boosting science 
or further education. And I thought one of the most encouraging things of the budget was the very large amount of extra money that was being pumped into science, including Dominic Cummings' favourite project, the Advanced Research Projects Agency-style body that the Americans have. So I think the blue sky is thinking this. So that, that was um, reasonably positive. I think on the downside of this is that there was this discussion about revising the famous Treasury Green Book, the rules by which they assess the value for money of individual projects. I don't know whether Chris would agree with this, but I think a lot of people say that's a good thing because at the moment... The spending rules suggest that you put projects into areas of the country that are most productive, which basically self-perpetuates the advantage that the London and the South East have over the rest of the country. On the other side of the ledger, you end up with some projects which look like terrible value for money going ahead. And the one that the Treasury officials like to point out is the famous Stonehenge Tunnel, a £2 billion project under the old Stone Age site, which they say is, represents terrible value for money. As one official said rather sarcastically, it sort of helps remove traffic jams on a Friday evening for people going down to their second homes. Well, obviously that project's very close to your heart, George. It is. As is the <laughs> duelling of the A1 to mine, which ah, yes. is finally going to happen. Another project that has never got past the Treasury's Green Book. But I want to come on to the public finances, Chris, because there was a lot of talk about whether as well as tearing up the Green Book rules, Rishi Sunak would look at the overall fiscal rules for the economy. And the fact is he's announced a review, but has not fundamentally changed them. Now, you could say, why have you announced a review if you're going to keep them exactly as they are? But all of this new spending is still within the current guidelines. It is. So all of the new spending is within keeping a current budget surplus, only just, and keeping total borrowing below 3% of national income. So those are the two of the rules that actually are binding. The third rule just isn't binding at all. So we can ignore that for the time being. As you say, Seb, Why review the rules if you're going to stick to them? I think that's got to be the slightly cynical view that anyone should take. They are not going to stick to them. We just don't know how much they're going to break them by. And if they're going to do small things around the edges, so maybe not run a current budget surplus, but have a little bit less capital spending, but use it on further education, which arguably has just as much impact on future growth as building a hospital or a school, which arguably has no impact on future growth, but it's maybe socially worthwhile, then I don't think anyone's going to argue too much with them. But if they use it, on the other hand, to say the other end of the scale would be to say, look, interest rates are really low. We can have a huge amount more debt. Why don't we say, instead of we've roughly got 80% of debt, why don't we have 120? Then I think you'll find there'll be more of a backlash, particularly on conservative benches and with people economists as well who say, well, that's all very well, so long as you can guarantee that both interest rates and inflation are going to stay where they are now, historically low levels. If they don't, we'll suddenly find we have a large amount of interest burden to pay on this debt. And that could be the subject of what we'll be talking about for the rest of the decade. Which, interesting enough, was a point that started Javid, the former Chancellor, was making in the Chamber of the House of Commons, having told us in an interview a month earlier that he thought interest rates were going to be low for long. In the Chamber, he was suggesting that they were volatile and they could start going up. Now, let's look at coronavirus, George, because really that's the Johnsonism part of the budget, which was expected. And it was obviously dialed back a little bit from what it was going to be. I think, you know, they might have just fully gone and broken the fiscal rules. They might have scrapped the fuel duty freeze, which they kept. They might have gone more aggressive on removing the subsidy for red diesel, which they kept for farmers, because coronavirus overshadowed the whole thing. And it's this £30 billion package, of which £18 billion was already announced. There was an extra £12 billion in the budget. What kind of things have they done? And do you think they were the right things? 
Well, I think the coronavirus thing obviously skewed the budget, not just from a presentational point of view, but from the point of view of the tax and spend balance of the budget. I think, as you were alluding to there, some of the tax rises they might have introduced there to put on hold because if you're talking about fiscal stimulus, it starts to muddy the water if you're starting to take money out of the economy. But these were measures aimed across three sectors, really, aimed at individual businesses that are going to be hit by a sharp but temporary downturn in their business, help them to get through difficult periods, help them with their tax bills and all the rest of it. Also money aimed at people who are going to have to self-isolate, who are going to lose money at work and particularly vulnerable people in the economy, the gig economy, people on zero hours contracts. And then also for the public services and the promise that the health service will get as much money as it needs to get through this. So it was a targeted package. I think the government was insisting that they didn't want to have a general fiscal stimulus. These measures had to be very targeted at specific issues. I've seen it suggested, I'd be interested to hear Chris's view on this, because we've got Brexit coming over the horizon as well, that this coronavirus package was actually a fiscal stimulus in disguise. I don't know what you think of that, Chris. Well, I think if you look at the numbers, for what we don't know how much the coronavirus is going to hit the economy, but let's say it takes 1% of the growth rate this year, that's 22 billion. So if you're given 12, it's not much of a stimulus, you're still going to have a hit. I think there is no doubt, and I think people are revising up almost by the second, how much they think coronavirus is going to hit both the UK economy and the global economy. We had earlier in this week Mark Carney giving his sort of last press conference. He avoided using the word recession. He thinks there's going to be a recession. Most people think there's going to be a recession from coronavirus. What the hope is that it goes down very sharply and then comes back very sharply later in the year once the disease is no longer in society. So all the figures in the budget are completely provisional. The 12 billion wasn't in the books. But more to the point is none of the global economic numbers, none of the UK economic numbers were in there. And when we get the next set of forecasts in the autumn, they're going to look massively different. And it might look really quite worrying. I don't want to be too much of a downer on this, but this is potentially big. Just to pick up that point as well, that buried in the Office of Budget Responsibility papers, there's there's quite a long section, if you look hard enough, on the economic damage that Brexit is going to cause the economy. And some of this will be played out over a much longer time period, of course, over 15 years, but basically 5.2% lower growth, 15% off trade with the European Union, £1 billion extra on borrowing as a consequence of the government's new tight rules on migration. It was in the week that Michael Gove, incidentally, announced the government wouldn't be carrying out an economic impact assessment of their preferred Canada-style trade deal. But if you want to see what it looks like, go into the OBR books. Indeed, and that does show that all these figures about borrowing, they're just not really worth looking at at the moment because it could all change so quickly. Now, finally, I want to get both of your views on Rishi Sunak, because obviously mm. the situation of giving this budget would be testing for any Chancellor with coronavirus, with the Brexit threat. We should say Mr Sunak is a very ardent enthusiast for leaving the EU. But the fact he was put into this job just a few weeks ago and the budget he delivered was quite different to the one Sajid Javid was going to. Because we know Sajid Javid, he gave an interview with the Times a couple of weeks ago where he talked about the big tax-cutting exercise he was going to go along. But Rishi Sunak didn't do that. So, George, first of all, what did you make of it? Because I thought the delivery of it was quite masterful, that actually in the House it went down well, getting through a lot of very tricky areas. He seemed to deal with it, and it was a lot less leaden than a Philip Hammond budget. We have no idea what a Sajid Javid budget would have looked like. Well, as I say, Sajid Javid suggested he would have cut income tax by two pence in the pound, and 
I have to say there are a lot of people in the Treasury who are very sceptical about whether this was indeed something he intended to do and whether this is part of Sajid Javid repositioning himself as sort of a low-tax, low-public-spending Tory, which wasn't necessarily, from the Treasury's point of view, the case. But leaving the previous Chancellor aside, the current Chancellor, I agree with you, is a very, very polished political performance. That No one doubts in the Treasury. People speak very highly of him that he's got a grip on the numbers. He's good with a spreadsheet. The big question about him is whether he's got the political nous and the political heft, if you like, at this stage. And, you know, he's only been Chancellor for a few weeks. You could clearly see the hand of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings throughout this budget. There was palpably resulting in Sajid Javid's departure, a power struggle between number 10 and number 11. When you look at that budget, it looks like number 10 prevailed. But nevertheless, I thought there was enough in Rishi Sunak's performance to sort of make people think he could potentially be a very substantial Chancellor. And certainly the reviews in the House of Commons tea room afterwards were extremely positive from Conservative MPs. One thing that struck me, Chris, is one question we don't know about Mr Sunak is why he's in politics. What is his driving force behind this? And I was remember an old line that someone once said, well, why does David Cameron want to be Prime Minister? And the answer came out because he thinks he'd be good at it. And when you look at Rishi Sunak, you might agree with that. But when it comes to those really difficult political decisions about where you're going to raise taxes and what happens if this big spending doesn't produce the big levelling up that you suggested. What is that going to leave him? Yeah, we don't know yet, is the the short answer. Perhaps we'll know that in the autumn. I think the one area that was really impressive in the budget was the coronavirus package. It was well targeted. It was substantial. It might not be enough. We might well need to revisit it. But you could really see the hand of both officials, of Treasury officials. I don't think there was a lot of number 10 in there. There was a lot of officials not so much in the scale, but in saying, look, don't do a general stimulus now. We don't actually, cut VAT, for don't example. Don't cut VAT. We don't want people to go into restaurants and clubs and bars. You know, mm. We don't want them to be generally spending, but we do want to tide over companies and households and the public services where they might actually lose a lot of income, will lose a lot of income in the months ahead. And so it was very well targeted. And for that to happen in three weeks, I think is impressive, because one thing we know is that the previous administration of the Sajid Javid advisors were literally writing, maybe we should do something about coronavirus as he was fired. That was what his (laughs) advisor was doing at that moment. So three weeks, pretty impressive. While the budget was undoubtedly the big political event of the week, coronavirus has overshadowed everything. Boris Johnson gave two press conferences where he's standing beside two of the country's chief medical experts. And on Thursday, he announced the UK had moved from the contain phase of battling coronavirus to the delay phase. And this includes much tougher provisions for public services and advice for what citizens should do. But as the Johnson government's approach continues, more questions are being raised about why the UK is striking a different approach to its European neighbours. Laura Hughes, let's begin with that press conference on Thursday. It was certainly the most sobering press conference I've seen by Boris Johnson, but possibly also by any Prime Minister in recent history. And he was being very stark about what lies ahead. And it was the moment that things really have ramped up in terms of how the government is addressing this crisis. Yeah, it was the point that the Prime Minister said, look, the public, I have to level with you here. Your loved ones are going to to die 
before their time. And I think there was a real message there, which is actually explains a lot of the government strategy at the moment. I think there's a general belief that most of us, at least 60% of us are probably going to get this. And in the process, a lot of old and vulnerable people are going to die. And whereas other governments don't seem to be saying that, that really was the Prime Minister's message. It's pre-warning the public this is just going to happen. We can't stop this. So you're just going to have to ride with it a bit. But he chose again deliberately to stand next to the chief scientific and medical advisors to the government who were there to give their input and to explain the thinking behind the recommendations that the government have made, which are, as we will discuss, really quite limited compared to other countries around the world. And that is him really trying to lean and rely on them. But for the public watching, there are some questions. Why is our advice best? Why is the UK advice somehow superior to other countries? And are we going to start working with other countries around the world to share what we have found with them? Because we have clearly decided that actually it's better to go slow, to not contain it now, because otherwise it's just going to pop up and peak up a lot later. As the Prime Minister, I think, put it, squashing the sombrero, which was the only Johnsonism we got in that press conference there. You sort of have to think he gave those very stark warnings to try and make sure people aren't complacent because of Obviously, the washing your hands, being careful, all the rest of it with personal hygiene has already been happening for a couple of weeks. And I think the most stark thing we heard from the PM was the fact that we're not going to have the peak of this thing for another 10 to 14 weeks to the end of May. And if you look at how drastic some of the measures are already, that's a long time away. Yeah, and part of what they were trying to explain was that the reason for that is they fear if you tell everybody to go stay at home now, people are going to go mad and they're going to get bored and they're going to give up and they'll be less diligent. Whereas if you save those measures for when they think they're really needed, that might be more effective. But it was a really striking press conference. And I think if you really look into the words that he said, he was describing this as the biggest sort of health crisis in a generation. He was calling people to work together to help their neighbours. There's a message there too. Look, if you are developing early symptoms, which is what the government was saying, if you have a new cough or a high temperature, stay at home. It's a public service to remove yourself from society at this point because they think they can delay, delay, delay. And they're trying to push the peak to the summer because, of course, that's when they believe the NHS is better equipped to cope with it because you have less people going in with other medical problems caused by the winter cold and season. So, Sarah Neville, can you explain what the UK's approach is now, the new measures and announced by Mr Johnson, and whether you think they're the right ones. Well, the principal new measure announced was that anybody with potential symptoms of coronavirus should self-isolate for seven days. But of course, what was very conspicuously not announced yesterday was some of the more dramatic, what are known as social distancing measures, such as banning large gatherings and closing schools. This all came right up to the very border of the UK early this week when Ireland announced that it was closing schools and our other quite near neighbour, France, has been banning gatherings of more than a 1,000 people for a while now. But I think the reason that the UK has taken this different approach is very strongly rooted in a team of people called the Behavioural Science Team, colloquially known as the Nudge Unit. And the advice that the government has been getting from those behavioural scientists is very much as Laura said, that if you introduce measures too early, people become blasé at the very moment when it's absolutely vital that those measures are adhered to. 
people have already got tired of them, already convinced themselves that they were unnecessary. So I think the role being played by that particular team is rather fascinating. And so the key thing from Boris Johnson this week was that if you now have these mild symptoms being a cough or a cold, then you have to self-isolate for seven days. But that's going to extend in the future. So anyone in a household who has that will also have to self-isolate, which again, as you said, is much less intrusive than some of the stuff from other governments. It is, although Chris Whitty, who Laura has already mentioned, who's emerged as a bit of a hero of all this, he made the point that even that you know, which is less than some countries have done, is not trivial. It's a lot to ask of people. And I noticed the language that you highlighted, Laura, when Chris Whitty, as well as the Prime Minister, talked about what people could do to contribute to this great national effort. I mean, I've never heard this kind of language before. This is the language that earlier generations were familiar with in wartime. And this week it has felt, notwithstanding the fact that the UK's measures are less than other countries have put in place, it's nevertheless felt that we've been put on a bit of a war footing here. Laura, this behavioural science unit that Sarah just talked about, the Nudge unit's been around for a couple of years and they're modelling human behaviour and trying to create policies that speak to that and are most effective. And this phrase emerged this week, herd immunity. What Sir Patrick Vallens and Chris Whitty, the two chief medical experts, want or think is the best outcome is for a bigger part of the population as possible to develop immunity to coronavirus because they say it will come back, it could come back in the winter until a vaccine is eventually delivered for this. So instead of trying to contain people and quarantine them as much as possible, which is what's happened in Italy, in Ireland, in France, they're saying, look, we're not doing that. We're accepting more people are going to get it. But in the longer term, that will be better. Now, it does of course entirely makes sense but it's a huge gamble given that it goes in the face of what so many other countries are doing. Politically they're not being as explicit as that but for the Prime Minister to just actually say we are accepting a lot of old people could die a bit quicker or sooner than in other countries is a huge thing and this could backfire. All the, the, the behavioural nudge unit is working alongside the medical and science experts. The government are really keen to stress that. It's not simply will people get bored of this? It's also looking at the science that our scientists are saying works best. But the real point I think that the government are trying to make here is also quite striking in that actually this probably isn't going to peak for another 10 to 14 weeks. So to start to tell everyone to work from home now, I mean, that's a long time. And the economic and social costs of that are huge. If you start taking NHS doctors and nurses out of the system to care for their children because schools have closed down, the government have judged that's not very effective. They also say that if you take children out, they'll still find ways of meeting up and talking to each other even if they're not physically at school, and that whilst they don't seem to be particularly susceptible to this, they can be carriers of it and they might put elderly relatives at risk. But it's so striking how different the approach here is. And it really could backfire if we look back on this and say, well, actually, look how many thousands died in that early stage when they weren't necessarily in other countries that were taking on these tougher rules. Why is British medical scientific advice superior in some way to other countries? the public are going to have to take this advice in good faith. We're going to have to trust in the government. There are only very few public politicians like Rory Stewart, who's running for the Mayor of London. He's really questioning this. He's saying we're going against what the WHO are recommending. Jeremy Hunt, the former secretary, he's come out and questioned. He said he's surprised that we're moving so slowly. 
the PM is taking a bit of a risk here. And whilst he can keep trying to put it on the science, he's making political judgments and decisions as we go through this. And what do you make of this, Sarah? Like, do you think if you compare the approach of the UK government and the people that Laura just mentioned versus other countries, you know, do you think the UK is taking the right approach with this? Well, one thing that is immensely striking in contrast to the US is that Boris Johnson here is absolutely listening to the scientists. I mean, for good or ill, and as Laura rightly says, we don't yet know entirely how this is going to play out. But it is such a stark contrast with President Trump, who has ignored, contradicted his own scientific advisers, And Mr Johnson has staked everything on trusting the scientific advice that he's getting. And I think, although it sounds a little chauvinistic to say so, we are viewed internationally as a country with exceptional reservoirs of epidemiological and other scientific talent. We genuinely do have some of the best in the world here. And time only will tell if their advice has been correct. But why is this advice of British scientists so different to other countries? Because that's what a lot of people can't get their heads around. I've heard Chris Whitty say behaviour that's appropriate for some viruses may not necessarily be appropriate for the coronavirus, particularly on the school closure issue, that children don't seem to actually get the virus in large numbers and when they do get it, they're not badly affected quite aside from the issue of their parents having to stay home and they may be NHS workers themselves to look after them. It's a hard question to answer why it's so different, but what has struck me is that they are so confident. If you listen to Chris Whitty, to Patrick Vallance, the two principal advisers, as Laura mentioned, there's not a scintilla of doubt there. And Chris Whitty in particular has a reputation as a man who is prepared when necessary to stand alone, that he doesn't make a fetish of consensus, that he's not a stubborn man and he will listen, but equally he is very intellectually comfortable with his own assessments of situations. At the moment, Boris Johnson appears equally comfortable with his assessment. Indeed, Laura, because essentially... Boris is putting everything onto these two experts. And as you said, the further we get down this process, the more political it's going to become. So the schools thing, for example, you know, Ireland has closed its schools, France has closed its schools. If you listen to the two medical experts, they say because it doesn't affect children as much, there's no necessarily need to do that just yet. But as we get further down this track, it is going to get more and more difficult. What kind of things do you think the government are going to talk about doing next? I think we could see more people in to work from home. There will be tighter restrictions on care homes where we know lots of old people are and incredibly vulnerable. There might be bans on large gatherings, but again, they keep saying they don't think that's very effective. I wouldn't expect to see schools closing down in the short term, but they are not ruling that out. And if you go back to the government's initial plan, it details the measures that it would introduce in this delay phase. But they've actually chosen not to go with a lot of the measures they said that they might. They're still keeping them there. So that's the sort of most drastic thing. I mean, with Parliament, for example, where we work, I don't think that will close till the very end because the panic and the signal and the symbolism of that would be enormous. You know, why are you closing down Parliament but not the tube system in London? So I think there could be more measures, but they're really slowly introducing them because, again, of this idea of people getting fatigued. And also, they won't say that quite as explicitly, but this herd immunity 
idea. So make sure all the vulnerable people stay at home and then actually let people get it and let people become immune to it. But that is risky because you don't know that that will necessarily happen. We don't know that this virus could mutate. We don't know what happens if it does come back, when it comes back. There are just going to be huge questions that will be asked in retrospect. But for now, because we don't understand all the science. So even if they publish their modelling, which I'm sure there will be calls for them to do, we want to see their scientific modelling. Not everyone can understand it. We just have to listen to the Prime Minister and these two men stood alongside him because it's something that is beyond most of our comprehension. Perhaps one point to make is that we may ultimately look more like other countries but it will be about the phasing of it. Because, as you rightly mentioned, Laura, they do have a lot of shots left in the locker. And I can well imagine some weeks down the line that we could be looking at theatres going dark, as Broadway already has, offices substantially closing down already. I'm finding public transport so much quieter than usual in London. Well, the FT's office today, while we're recording, this is like the Marie Celeste at the moment. Absolutely. Just a few of our stalwarts in today. (laughs) To deliver this podcast. (laughs) And so your earlier question, Seb, about why we're taking such a different approach, it may turn out that it's the timing that's so different rather than necessarily the sort of quantum of the measures that we take ultimately. Yeah, I mean, when you speak to people privately, they are actually arguing that the science is the same. They're saying the science that our Danish counterparts are looking at and concluding it is the same. It's just about the way that these things are being introduced that's different. But just as a member of the public waking up this morning, looking at what all the different countries are doing, it's been striking how many events are just being cancelled and how many offices are just closing down. And people are just taking measures onto themselves. They're seeing what other places are doing and they're deciding not to go to work. They might be deciding not to visit their elderly relatives or to send their children to school. The government can issue all this guidance, but people might panic, as we've seen with stockpiling in supermarkets, and they're just going to do their own thing. And finally, we should just look at how Boris Johnson has coped about all this. We talked in the podcast last week and said that generally we all thought he was doing a pretty good job. And I feel like that's again the mood in Westminster, Laura, that the Prime Minister, we know he's buffoonish, jokey personality. A lot of that has subsided. And by resting on these experts, of course, many, many jokes made about this with regards to the Brexit referendum, he broadly seems to have stepped up to the moment most people think. I know there's people who loathe him and will say that he hasn't. The people who love him will say that, you know, he's the Winston Churchill of our times. But I feel like the middle ground opinion is that he's doing well and that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, is also doing pretty well too over this. Yeah, it's really going to be a case of looking back at this And how it turns out. Because some of the criticism has been, actually, it's not the job of a politician to put so much weight on his advisers. It's for the politician to listen to the advice and then to make a judgment. And what the Prime Minister is doing, he's trying to appear as if he's not making a judgment. He's, he really is putting so much pressure on the people around him. It, it's fascinating watching Leo Varadkar yesterday announce those measures in Ireland. He was sort of stood there on his own. The Prime Minister is not coming out on his own to say anything. He's got the sort of bodyguards next to him. Because of the optics of that, it really is saying to people, look, this is on these guys, not just me. And that could backfire. People will argue he didn't take enough personal responsibility of this and he hasn't done enough to explain why we are taking such radically different measures other than just repeating the same line and we are following the medical and expert advice. And Sarah, what do you think about Matt Hancock's on this particular in your patch? 
I agree with your perception that he's done a good job. He grasped very quickly, I think, the extreme seriousness of the situation, faster, I think, than some of his cabinet colleagues did, actually. And he has acted quickly to take charge. Indeed, for the early part of the outbreak, he was in sole charge. He was chairing COBRA meetings. It did, of course, take quite a while for Boris Johnson to become, at least publicly, and I believe even internally to some extent, engaged. Mr Johnson has now made himself the ministerial face of all this. He has stepped up. But there was quite a period when it was Matt Hancock who was being that public face. And I think ultimately it's going to be how this crisis pans out. We can then decide really how they've weathered it between them. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Chris, Laura and Sarah for joining us. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, well, we'll be back with you, even if the quality is a bit shakier than usual. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.